Well, good morning. Uh, it is a joy to be with you uh, this morning. It really, really is. Um, uh, I don't know if you could classify this as social media or not, but Reddit, if you don't know what Reddit is, it is a website in which it's just dialogue, constant dialogue on any subject. You can talk about um, history, art, music, musicians, artists, actors, uh, video game sports teams, like it is filled. It is the place for debate in 2024. Um, and so I decided to, to peruse Reddit and, and just was wondering, what do people think about the resurrection of Jesus on Reddit? Now on Reddit, everyone thinks they have a PhD and everyone thinks they're the smartest person on the internet. Uh, they also speak as if there are no consequences for their actions until I take a picture of what you said and read it in a congregation. Um, so this one person on Reddit, he, they're discussing the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. And this is not a believer. He says, resurrected as in revived three days after he died? Look, we hardly had paper and ink back then. All the records are superficial at best and through the word of mouth before they were actually recorded. Remember, electricity use and its modern usage only started less than 200 years ago. But most of human achievements and technology have rapidly accelerated in the past 200 years, including medical advances. Put yourself in a frame of mind where you don't have the information you have today, and you realize they just had hearsay and their myth stories to help understand the nature around them. Can't blame them for believing in, a, in being resurrected, but I highly doubt there's any credible evidence. You have to use some rational thinking. Thank you so much for uh, that comment, Reddit user. But is it? Is, is it rational or even credible to believe that someone died and came back to life? Now, obviously, there's a huge hump to get over that scientifically we cannot prove that, that people come back alive. Like, we, we can't scientifically prove that, but that's one of the things that makes it crazy. It makes it uh, not crazy in the sense of doesn't make sense, but crazy because it's larger than life. And just because you can't scientifically prove something doesn't mean that it didn't happen or it doesn't have any value or worth. Think about human rights. We can't prove that humans have dignity and worth. We can't prove our moral ethics. We can't prove the origins of the universe, but these things we know to be true. And so, I want us to look at some evidences for the resurrection. And what I want to do to the believer in here is, is just equip you with some tools for common arguments that you may hear of why the resurrection could not have happened. What I don't want to do is load up your personal canon so you go on Reddit or you talk to your unbelieving friend and you just start hurling arguments at them. But instead, I want you to have a reason for what we believe and why we believe it and see that it's credible. We want to answer our opponents gently and with kindness. And guys, if the resurrection is true, it is unbelievably sweet. I want us to turn first to, to 1 Corinthians 15 
3 through 8. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. We pray with me. Lord, we thank you that the resurrection is good news. We thank you that it's credible. We thank you for the implications it has on our lives and on the world. Would we see that? Would we behold it? Would we believe it? In Christ's name, amen. So we're going to go through three sections of proofs, okay? And I'm going to try to not be a lecturer up here. I'm not a professor. I'm not a historian. I'm a pastor. But this is going to sound a little historian and lecturer-ish at times, okay? So bear with me. We're going to be as engaging as possible. Uh, our first proofs are the empty tomb and the eyewitnesses. Scholars agree that Jesus was buried, and this was key because a lot of times in crucifixions, they would just leave the bodies up there and they would decompose on their own. But Jesus was buried. Jesus was buried in a tomb. And some people posit the, the claim that, well, the disciples went to the wrong tomb or they stole his body. Uh, that was actually a claim in Matthew 28 and then a few church leaders later on still note that this claim that Jesus' body was stolen is still going throughout because nobody can find the body. Like it is still around, that theory was still around for 150 years after Jesus' death because the, nobody knows where the body is. And they didn't go to the wrong tomb because the powerful leaders in the day had access to where the tomb would have been. They could have contacted Joseph of Arimathea and been like, which tomb was it? They could have gone to the disciples. Are we sure we're at the right tomb? They could have watched them over and over again. They didn't go to the wrong tomb. The body just wasn't there, and they don't know where it is. One historian named Michael Grant, who I, I don't know if he was a Christian or not. I don't think he was. But he was a, a prolific historian, and he said this, the historian cannot justifiably deny the empty tomb because if we apply the same historical criteria that we use elsewhere, then the evidence is firm and plausible enough to necessitate the conclusion that the tomb was indeed found empty. So Grant agrees that if historians use their same methods of looking back at sources and understanding it, historically speaking, there is no, no body in a tomb. It's empty. On top of the empty tomb, you have the eyewitnesses, the women, the disciples, plus 500, most of whom are still alive. And 1 Corinthians was written by Paul, right? I believe that the, the letters we have from Paul were written by him, but some non-Christian scholars would disagree. But non-Christian scholars, everyone agrees that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, and they agree that he wrote it early. This is actually the first testimony of the resurrection. This is about 20 years after the resurrection. 
And Paul says this. He says, what I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received. So he received this teaching. And he received it probably when he went to go speak to the apostles early on. And they delivered him this creed. Uh, Most commentators believe that verses uh, 3 through 8 are a creed of some sort in the early church. And most scholars agree that this creed came about no more than three years after Jesus' death. Probably a couple months after his death, but no more than three years. There was early testimony that Jesus had died, was buried, and was raised. Early, early on. Do not believe the lie that this was fabricated hundreds of years later. This was early on. And so Paul writes that there are 500 people who have seen him. Go ask them. Go talk to them. Come talk to me. I've seen him. Go talk to Peter. He's seen him. Go talk to the, like the disciples have seen Jesus. We're around. You can go find us and talk to us and we're here to tell you about it. So we have empty tomb and eyewitnesses. Next thing we have is estranged people. See, Paul mentions that Jesus appeared to Peter, to James, and to himself. So let's take Peter first. Because some people think that Peter felt so guilty that he had a vision of Jesus in order to sear his conscience. That he felt so bad for denying Jesus and then Jesus died that Peter was just guilt stricken. And so he envisioned Jesus. He saw him walking around one day and he was like, oh, he's risen. I'm, uh, this makes sense. Oh, wonderful. I'm restored. This is great. David Hume, a philosopher, he said, what is more likely that the laws of nature have been suspended in your favor or that you made a mistake? Positing the notion that Peter just made a mistake. He didn't actually see the risen Christ. He just had the laws of nature suspended so that he could feel better about himself. And there's no doubt that Peter really wanted to see Jesus again, that he loved him. But did things work out in Peter's favor? (laughs) Clement of Rome, who wrote around 90 AD, super early on, he says this about Peter. He says, Peter... Through unrighteous envy, endured not one or two, but numerous labors. And when he had at length suffered martyrdom, departed to the place of glory due to him. It doesn't really sound like things worked out in Peter's favor. Like, he, he's, he's guilt-ridden, he's guilt-stricken, he sees something, his life changes, but it doesn't get easier He could have just gone back to being a fisherman and had a nice quiet life, but instead life gets harder for him. Not just one or two bad weekends, but a life of suffering. Had he stolen the body, wouldn't he have given up? But some people say maybe Peter was too brainwashed. You know, he had been around Jesus for a while and he really loved him. So maybe that's just what happened. But I want to talk about these two others, James and Paul, who at the time of Jesus' death didn't really matter to them. We see from the Gospels that James, he thought his brother was crazy. 
He thought his brother had a demon. He wanted his brother to stop preaching and saying that he was the Messiah because it was weird and brought dishonor on his family. And so James is not interested in what his brother has to say. But then later on we get from church history that James becomes a leader in a church. And not just any church, but the Jerusalem church. And he's actually preaching in the Jerusalem church. And he's actually in one document called a troublemaker in the Jerusalem church. So all of a sudden, he goes from, my brother is causing problems, he's embarrassing us, he's dishonoring us, to now James is a leader in the Jerusalem church. And he's stirring up problems. What happened? You know, James stirred up so much problems that the scribes and Pharisees didn't like what he had to say. There's a a document from 150 AD, early on, by a historian named, I'm going to get this wrong, Hegesippus. And this is what he says about the death of James. He says, the scribes and Pharisees accordingly set James on the summit of the temple and cried aloud to him. And they said, O just one, whom we are all bound to obey, for as much as the people is in error and follow Jesus the crucified, will you tell us what is the door of Jesus? How do, we, how do we access Jesus, the Son of Man? He himself, um, and James says this. He says, why do you ask me concerning Jesus, the Son of Man? He himself is in heaven at the right hand of the great power and shall come again on the clouds of heaven. What takes James from being a annoyed little brother to saying Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the great power and he's coming again? What could it be? Same thing with Paul, persecuting the church, well-educated, doing just fine. Did that work out in his favor? Were the laws of nature suspended in his favor? We know from from Scripture and again from our buddy Clement writing in 90 AD that Paul also obtained the reward of patient endurance after being seven times thrown into captivity, compelled to flee, and stoned. After preaching both in the east and the west, he gained the illustrious reputation due to his faith having taught righteousness to the whole world and come to the extreme limit of the West and suffered martyrdom under the prefects. Peter, James, Paul, lives transformed like that. Empty tomb, eyewitnesses, estranged lives changed. Something had to have happened. Something had to have happened. And people will say, well, maybe those are just individuals who really believe this, but could anyone take this seriously? And I would say it changed everything. Where those men lived, it changed everything. And I just want to give three, three shifts of the early church. All right, see, we've got ease going on, okay? Eyewitness, empty tomb, estranged lives, and early church. And I want to look at three shifts in the early church. The first one, this is the shift of the day that the Jews met. They used to meet on the last day of the week, right? It was um, the seventh day God rested. And then all of a sudden, they're meeting Sunday mornings. What's going on? And uh, 
Justin Martyr, writing in 160 AD, wrote this. Sunday is the day which we all hold our common assembly because it's the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world. And Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day rose from the dead. So all of a sudden, the tides are turning in the culture. The culture shifts from meeting on Saturday to now they're meeting on Sunday. Why? Because that's the day that God brought matter and light into the world. It's the first day he created. He created stuff and substance and light came into the world. And a greater light came back into the world. That Jesus was resurrected from the dead. That the true light has come into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So we are going to worship the resurrected Christ on Sunday mornings. Are you with me? Okay, so they shift everything they do culturally. That's when the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. Sunday, this day, we gather to celebrate the risen Lord. That would have been a huge cultural shift for the Jews. There was another giant cultural shift that took place, and that was their view of resurrection. Because you had Jews that believed one, or two thi- one of two things. Either they believed there was no bodily resurrection, no resurrection at all, Or Jews believed that there was a general resurrection at the end of time. And with the general resurrection at the end of time where uh, body and soul are risen together, everyone's raised, that sin, sickness, death, hurt, suffering would be no more. But that was all to take place at the end of time. What they didn't believe is just an individual could rise body and soul and if they believed that they would have said sin sickness suffering are still here that doesn't make any sense the end of time has not come what they wouldn't have believed is that an individual rose body and soul so for the Jews it was a giant shift same thing for the Greeks it was a giant shift because they believed that the body was bad that we were trying to escape the body. The body needs to stay, stay bad and uh, our purified spirit is what is raised. So neither the Jews nor Greeks had a category for an individual rising body and soul from the grave. And if they had, maybe they would have written it something like this. Jesus rose on the third day and we knew it was Jesus. You could see the death on him. And he looked almost like a zombie, like a corpse. It was kind of the same body. But he rose from the dead, pretty amazing. Or they would have written it something like this. Jesus rose on the third day, and there he was, his face like Moses, shining, glimmering, gleaming, magisterial. You could tell that this guy was uh, something else. So they would have thought he was either a zombie, or they would have made him seem so otherly, almost like at the transfiguration. But what you have, once again, is neither. Jesus is unrecognizable at times, right, to his own disciples. They're like, oh, Jesus, like, it takes him a little bit to get it. And yet his body is something so otherly, it can, it can be touched. And it does still have the nails. And it still has a pierced side, yet it can eat, but it can also walk through walls. It is something so otherly. 
And they believed it. And they knew it. And they saw it. And they ate with it. And they hugged it. And they held it. And they smelled it. It was something so extraordinary. All the sermons and acts look at the life, death, resurrection, uh, life and death and bodily resurrection. It's at the center of them. And so the early church had totally shifted in the way that it viewed the resurrection. It had gone from general resurrection or no resurrection, or the Greeks, body-soul dualism, to something so otherly. And so that shifted how they could face death. We talked about how Paul and James and Peter faced death willingly. But even so, the early church faced it head on. I I got rid of this quote, but there's an early letter from a governor named Pliny the Younger. Uh, And Pliny is writing to the Roman emperor Trahan because he's got these Christians on his hands. And it's, it's really new. He doesn't understand uh, how to persecute them. He's really asking, like, how do I persecute them and, in a sense, torture them? What, what should be the, what's our policy here? Like, this was not a time where it was like, oh, it's cool to be a Christian. This was you were signing up to be hurt. You were signing up to be uh, beaten, to be cast out, to be discarded. And I think one of the most beautiful places we see this is with a guy named Polycarp. Polycarp lived uh, first to second century, and he, he's, his martyrdom is recorded in 155 A.D. Earlier he says, I have served the Lord for 86 years, and he's never done me wrong. And so they're getting ready to set Polycarp ablaze, burn him at the stake, um, get eaten by animal, all these terrible things. And Polycarp just holds strong. And he says this. O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels, powers, every creature, And of all the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of body and soul. Polycarp had this unbelievable assurance that he could face death because death wasn't the end, because he knew the power of the resurrection. Paul Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul closes that way because he says the resurrection, it's true, and so it changes everything. I don't know what you brought into church this morning. I don't know what bad diagnosis you got or you're afraid you're gonna get. 
I don't know the frustrations that you're feeling walking in here, whether it's marital conflict, whether it's a, a child that's wandered off from the faith, whether it's anxiety or depression. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is intellectually credible. And it is so satisfying. Because Jesus promises death does not get the last word. It will not get the last word over you. And so you can walk into the doctor's office and you can be so scared. But you can walk in knowing that that's not the end. You can walk into the attorney's office knowing the divorce is finalized and knowing that death is not the end, but there is a bright hope, a bright future because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and it is a beautiful and beautiful thing. The promise of a new healing, a new body, a newness unlike anything we can imagine. Hell, sin, sickness have been swallowed up and Jesus Christ rules and reigns victoriously. Will you pray with me? Father, the resurrection of Jesus is beautiful. What else can transform lives? What else can change the course of, of world history? What else is worth staking our entire lives and eternity upon but you and you alone? Lord, give us faith. It seems so tough and radical to believe, but it's so true. Father, I pray that we would exercise faith in it, that we wouldn't just intellectually assent that this is a possibility, but instead we would stake our lives on it. And in the face of turmoil, trial, tribulation, suffering, mockery, scorn, death, we would look and see you, O oh, risen Jesus. We thank you for who you are. In Christ's name, amen.